As we get ready to go into the study this morning, some of you may not have been here in a little while or you may be visiting today and um, I want to bring you up to speed what we're doing at Sturgeon Bay Community Church during this sermon series. We are taking the year 2017 and we're spending all of it in the book of Mark. We might get done in 2017, it might stretch into next year, we'll see. But what we're trying to do is, is, is read through and understand and find out everything that God can teach us uh, that we can get a hold of in our, in our messages about um, himself through the book of Mark. Now, Mark has a theme. The theme of Mark is simply this. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. That's what Mark wants you to walk away with each and every time you've read in his gospel. John Mark, you see, was very young. He was a young teen guy when he encountered Jesus, living there in Jerusalem, um, he didn't have a dad in his life. His mom was a wealthy lady. They owned a, a larger home there in Jerusalem, and, and uh, he got to see some of the ministry of Jesus, hear the vibe of what was going on there. But the Last Supper with the apostles, that was held in John Mark's house. So John Mark got to be in the house when Jesus said, this is my body given for you. This is my blood that's shed for you. John Mark got to be there when the apostles were hiding after the crucifixion. And he got to be there when Jesus appeared, resurrected. That was in John's house, in John Mark's house. And John Mark got to be there when, when Timothy came or, or, or Thomas came and put his hands in the, his fingers in the, in the holes in Jesus' hand and the hole in his side. And John Mark followed Peter as one of Peter's uh, um, apostles, disciples there later in life, and then eventually John Mark would become the bishop of the church in Antioch. He would lead the entire African church. That would be what John Mark was doing. Known for his scholarship and his writing, John Mark was the first to sit down and write what we call a gospel today about Jesus. Hearing from Peter for so many years, having seen the end there in the beginning of the church itself, John Mark took the time to put down on paper the story, the gospel of Jesus, so we could understand his students and people for the, however many years it would be until the Lord came back in his second coming, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. How grateful are we all that John Mark did that? Other apostles would follow suit. And it would be Luke and Matthew, and, and John would also write Gospels. There would be several false ones and heretical ones that would come out there. And thank goodness the church has been able to oust those and jettison them to the garbage where they belong. But to retain in the core of Scripture the truth of the Gospel of Jesus. And it really began with Mark. So we've been taking this year to study through the book of Mark. We're going to pick back up today in the 8th chapter. So if you have your Bibles, you're going to want to go to Mark chapter 8. We're going to go verses 1 to 10 today, and we'll hop forward a little bit for some, um, for some fill-in and some content. But let's have a word of prayer, and then we will dive straight into the book of Mark. Our Father God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for the safety and the security and the comfort that we're enjoying this morning. God, I thank you that we came to church in cars that run on roads that are safe in a nation that, you know, where we have liberty. We came with full tummies, and we came into a place that's comfortable, that's clean, and well-lit, and we can open Bibles that we can easily have, and God, that's not been the case for many Christians across history, and not even today for many. So God, thank you for that. Forgive us where we take it for granted. Help us to appreciate these things and the people that make it possible, and those who've gone before to pave this way for us. May we learn from your word now, God, as we take time to unpack it. May it have impact in our lives. And help us transform this community, Lord, by loving you and loving others. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. In those days, there was again a large crowd, 
that gathered and had nothing to eat. Jesus called the disciples and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've already stayed with me three days and have had nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way, and some of them have come a long distance. His disciple answered him, Where can anyone get enough bread here in this desolate place to feed these people? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked them. Seven, they said. He commanded the crowd to sit down on the ground. Taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. So they served the crowd. They also had a few small fish, and after he had blessed them... Jesus said, these were to be served as well. The people ate and were satisfied. Then they collected seven large baskets of leftover pieces. About 4,000 people were there. Jesus dismissed them, and he immediately got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Delamunta. Today we're going to look at three things. First of all, um, let's try this again. Jesus is going to patiently but persistently try again with the disciples to help them get the message. Secondly, um, roundabout seems to be Jesus's GPS pattern. Why is that? Why is it Jesus doesn't just go straight to the heart and say, here's who I am, here's what we're doing? Why does he seem to weave around? What is he trying to do? And thirdly, it's about dinner chat and application time, something to be learned from the example that Jesus set today. So uh, three areas that we're going to engage in over the next uh, couple of hours of the message, you know, it'll be great. It's been a long couple of months that the apostles have been on the road with Jesus. They've been following him um, since the the storm on the water, you know, where they were trying to get to the shore, and Jesus walked on the water and scared them. Oh, it's a ghost, and took them to the shore, and they began to heal people again, and and, uh, they've been with him a long time. It's funny, we read the Scripture, and we go through Mark, and we read a few chapters, and we just figure this is a couple of days worth of things happening. Jesus is doing ministry for three and a half years, and, and there's about a year has taken place of, you know, when Jesus has started till we get to this point in ministry. It's been several months these guys have been on the road by the time we get here to this, to this instance of another feeding of several thousand people. During that time, Jesus has walked on water. He's been doing healings all over the place in Galilee and Nazareth. Then, uh, excuse me, moving up into the northern areas now, he's beginning to do healings up there. These people are Gentiles. There's been countless teachings that have taken place along the way, not just the teachings to the crowd, but also the teachings to the apostles and the disciple or group as they followed him around. He would stop and around the, around the fire at night, he would teach them. When they would stay in people's houses, he would teach them. It's constantly learning from this rabbi. He's opened kind of a battlefront with the Pharisees and the Sadducees in case that you missed it. Um, he's, he's definitely confronted them. He called them what? Was that word from the theater that he called them? Hypocrites. What a whole new idea has occurred that you're not real. You're just acting like something. Your faith is fake. And so this, this, this battlefront is open with the Pharisees. Uh, he's moved into Gentile country to start ministering to, to Samaritans and Gentiles. And now they're going way north into Tyre and Sidon, which are not just Gentile, but Hellenistic and, and groups of people who have no relation to the Jews whatsoever. They have, a, they have an antagonistic, uh, usury relationship against the Jews. So as Jesus is trying to teach his message, over and over and over again, he would sit on the same teachings, the same thing, the same kinds of healings, hoping that eventually these apostles are going to get the point, Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. But it's been three days. I don't want you to miss this. 
Jesus has been walking with and teaching these people for three days straight. Think that would work in our society? It's funny, I get to 41 minutes any given Sunday morning and you guys start shuffling and moving around and checking watches and your cell phone, you know, I've seen this look before. Three hours? No, three days. Jesus has been teaching these folks. It seems, though, a lot of times those of us who are, or people, when they're, when they're poor, when they don't have the distraction of you know, responsibilities or jobs or, or maintaining their wealth or maintaining their stuff, they have a whole lot more time to hear Jesus. It seems that when we're not wrapped up in our technology and business and work and all this stuff, it seems that we can hear Jesus talking a whole lot clearer. These distractions that we put around us that, that we, we feel give us security and safety and, and possibility, a lot of times what they're really doing is limiting the time that we have for our Lord. By the way, in our families, it limits the time we have for our kids and our spouses and our in-laws and our friends and our neighbors too. Let's be careful that our priorities look the way Jesus' priorities looked. <clears throat> as, as Jesus is talking to this crowd, though, um, He's going to do this miraculous thing for them. He's going to feed these thousands of people. And the apostles who are there should be going, oh, I know what's about to happen. The crowd is hungry. Watch what Jesus is going to do. Isn't that exactly what they did? Let's take a trip in time. Let's go back to Mark chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, let's hear some pages rolling. If we go back in Mark chapter 6, verse 35, 635, here's what happens. When it grew late, his disciples approached Jesus and said, This place is deserted and it's already late. Send them away, this crowd, so they can go into the surrounding countrysides and villages to buy themselves something to eat. You give them something to eat, Jesus responded. Judas says, Should we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give everybody something to eat? Jesus asked them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. Then we know what happens next, right? He takes the loaves and the fishes and he feeds 5,000 men along with their women and the children. And 13,000, 15,000 people are going to eat this day. Now, we learned from that text, by the way, if you weren't here several weeks back, um, that, that Jesus was really pushing a lesson home. And Mark was pushing a lesson home by making that comment about men rather than mentioning the women and children. It's kind of making you think about how many women and children were there. Hey, women and children are in the lesson, too. Jesus is teaching them. Jesus is taking care of them too. Jesus cares about, Jesus is giving them the opportunity to learn. And it wasn't so much the matter of, of that women and children are there. It's the matter that Jesus is allowing women to learn from a rabbi. What? To the Jewish people, this was, what are you, what are you, what are you doing? They're women. They're possessions. They're there to make babies and be barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen. What is this? What's this teaching women and children thing? Jesus says, suffer the children. No, let them come to me. What? what are you talking about, rabbi? They're kids. They don't matter. They're accessories. And so here's, here's Jesus shattering all of their realities. And Mark is making sure you struggle just the way the Jews did. But he also wanted you to make sure you understand it's a Jewish crowd. Are we all on the same page here real quick? Yeah? Okay. <laughs> it's an expressive church. We talk back and forth. You can raise your hand, ask questions. I can't see you. It's just, you know. So during the course of, uh, of their time with him, Jesus has done this. So let's fast forward. Here we are in chapter 8. Let's see if any of this sounds even remotely familiar. His disciples said, where can anyone get enough bread here in this desolate place to feed these people? And Jesus said, how many loaves do you have? 
And all the apostles went, oh, that's right. You're the Messiah, the Son of God. You go, JC. This will be great. Isn't that how they did it? No. What'd they do? Here's the problem. We Americans, we Western 21st century Americans miss something huge that's going on at this moment. And it's something that really frustratingly, it seems that Christendom has missed with regards to Jesus and his ministry. Let me see if I can unpack it for you. The feeding of the 5,000 men along with their women and children, that thirteen to 15,000 people, that crowd, that was a Jewish crowd. They were Jews. They were here to hear a Jewish rabbi teach a Jewish message about Jewish life and a Jewish Messiah. That's what they were learning from Jesus. He was unloading and unfolding the Jewish scriptures, and he was bringing it home to those people's hearts. And when they ate the food that he gave them, they were eating it, and they were seeing 12 baskets left over and 12 apostles that followed the Messiah. This message was making its way home to them. It was a Jewish moment. This moment is a Gentile moment. Not just a Gentile moment, but a Syrophoenician, city of Tyre and Sidon follower, kind of a Gentile moment. Historically, here's, here's something that's important to you. The Syrophoenicians, just like the Philistines, would steal from the Jews. They were aggressive people. They were militaristic, they were advanced, and they were aggressive. And they would really brutalize the Jews and take from them, treating the Jews like, like nobodies that could be mistreated and, and, and abused. That's really what it came down to. So for Jesus to go north and to minister to them really is doing a lot. We're going to talk more about that in a few minutes. But at this particular moment in time, this group of people are Gentiles. The apostles, God bless them, didn't get the message the first time with the Jews. They most certainly didn't get it this time with the Gentiles. It's why a little bit later on in that same passage in chapter 8, uh, it gets to verse 17, uh, 18. And Jesus says, do you have eyes to hear and ears to see? Remember me not? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets were left did you collect? Twelve, they told him. When I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets were left and did you collect? Seven, they said. And Jesus says, don't you understand yet? How many of you have uh, raised teenagers? Do you find that you have to teach the same lesson over and over and over and over and over and over? Are you getting it yet? Does it seem when you raise children... That over and over you have to reinforce the same lesson over and over and over. Have you found that that's kind of the case? Now, we outgrow it as adults, right? You never, ever had, Don, am I right? Never have to, that, isn't that the, no? <laughs> it's common to humanity, isn't it? Learning lessons is what creates maturity. Can I share with you some scripture verses all, all through the scripture that speaks to this very thing? In 1 Corinthians uh, 14, 20, it says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In 1 Corinthians 13, 11, it says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish things. Ephesians 4, 14 to 15, uh, So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. Hebrews 5, 12 to 13, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, 
Not solid food for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. And listen, listen, on and on and on we could go. The Bible continually speaks about growing up and becoming mature, feeding not just on milk but now on meat. Listen, if as a, as a child, as a baby, you, you never came off the bottle and, and you lived your whole life on the bottle, how healthy are you going to be? You need, you need proteins. You need grown-up food. Scripture says meat, vegetarians, by the way, just throwing that out there. And so is not opening a front here. I'm just goofing. But as time goes by, you need to eat foods for grown-ups and not eat food like a baby. And the same thing is true for Christians. And this is what's frustrating. Jesus continually sets the table for these disciples, for these apostles. And what do they do? They continually don't eat what they need, what is in front of them. They have eyes to hear and ears to see, but it's just not sinking in. What's the matter with you guys? But don't we do that? So how does Jesus solve this? How does Jesus teach them in this moment? Well, does Jesus uh, do like some of our, our parents do? Does he just hover over them? And they don't ever get to do it. Just sits right over top. Oh, no, no, no. I'll pull you back in here. No, 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 no. Do it this way. Oh, I'll, I'll do it for you. No. Jesus backs up like a real parent. And what's a real parent do? Teaches, gives instructions, protects them, but allows them to learn. Allows these people to learn. Gives them chance after chance after chance for the lesson to get through. That term is long-suffering. Here's another word for it. This, this is great. It's called parenting, right? Remember how easy the Bible told you parenting would be? Oh, it's a blast. It's no problem at all. Anybody can do it. If you're old enough, everybody should just do it. No worries at all. Don't need to be in prayer. It'll never cause you a heartache. It's simple, Right? Right? All the parents who agree, go ahead, give me a hand. No, of course not. Parenting is work. Listen, discipling is work. For Jesus, what he does for these disciples, it's work. And they disappoint him. So does Jesus just throw his hands up and go, oh, you morons, I give up. Figure it out yourself. Go back to the law. Isn't that how he did it? No. Jesus, time after time after time, reinforces and teaches and loves and reinforces those lessons and gives them chance after chance after chance because, listen, here's the bottom line. When they get the message, when they learn what Scripture is trying to teach them, it becomes internalized. And now, now, when that teenager, when that child becomes a grown-up, what's going to come out is going to be what you've poured in. Hey, your kids are going to parent the way you do. Do you know that? Hey, hey, temper-losing parent, how do you think your children are going to parent their kids? Hey, distant parent who doesn't have time for the kids, how do you think your kids are going to parent? Hey, where did you learn to parent? Jesus is trying to demonstrate a parenting lesson. Patient, persistent, consistent. Teaching them truth and giving them the opportunity to get to this golden nugget. When they own it, when it occurs to them, they're going to own it, and it's going to be theirs, and that's the way that they're going to behave. Raise up a child in the way that they should go, and yeah. Now, by the way, it's a proverb, not a promise, so don't get upset when your kids don't do it exactly the way you told them. See, Scripture lied to me. No, no, no. What we need to understand is we're, we have a mandate to follow Jesus' example, to teach with patience and consistence and persistence, and that's what he's doing for the apostles. Hey, eventually, they all get it. Eventually, they get it. It changes their lives, and it changes the world, or we wouldn't be here. But as a child, you do things like a child. As a grown-up, you do things like a grown-up. And all along the way are the opportunities for maturity 
And that's exactly what Jesus provides them. The apostles seem a little slow to us, but at the end of the day, we're pretty slow too. Number two, the roundabout seems to be Jesus' GPS pattern. So why is it that Jesus does the kind of traveling and routes that he does? So I've told you before, the area where Jesus did his earthly ministry is about the size of, of the Door County Peninsula. It's about the same geographic area. So to go from Tyre to Galilee by way of Sidon is kind of like going from Sturgeon Bay to Algoma by way of Gibraltar. Okay? Why would you do that? Why are you going way up there to get down to here? We could almost see like, hey, Jesus, it's right there. You can see it. We're going to Bearcats for dinner. Okay, we'll be there in three hours. No, it's right there. It's 40 minutes. Why are we going all the way up here? Jesus is walking. He's not riding in a car. No, they didn't have good cars back then. They weren't riding on donkeys all the time because they weren't wealthy. The Romans had the right-of-way on the road. The Jews had to move to the right or to the side every time a Roman would come through or a centurion or, or, you know, or Syrophoenician. So it's not easy traveling. So why would Jesus do it? Well, first of all, it's about relationships. Because as Jesus walks with his disciples, he's talking to them the whole time. As, as he's moving along, he's talking to them. As they go from, from town to town, they're going to stay with people. They don't have Motel 6s. Nobody's leaving the light on for you. They're having to stay with people when they go from town to town. If you're going to eat when you get there, did the apostles always remember to have a big bag of food? Did they, did they just stop by Wawa or Quick Trip on the way? No. They had to depend on the hospitality of other Jews when they would arrive in this town to take care of them. This is the kind of traveling they're doing. Sound easy? No, this can be very stressful. This can be difficult. And if, if it's really stretching their faith every step. And now Jesus is going to go up into Syrophoenician Gentile territory with the apostles. It's about relationships. But what's that other thing Jesus is trying to get across to us? What's he trying to demonstrate? What is he teaching these, these kids, as it were, these disciples he's parenting? What is he trying to show them? God's love crosses ethnic and racial and socioeconomic and religious barriers to bring people to Jesus and to the gospel. That's why you just can't miss 21st century Christians, Americans. you got to make sure you see this. In our culture, it, would, it seems strange. I mean, if you watch the news all the time, it may not be, but it's the news. But if you watch that all the time, all, you're going to think that the races are fully divided in America, and we all hate each other, and, and the rich hate all the poor, and we never do anything together. Please, live in the real world of America, and we find that we're a blended, melting, beautiful pot of all of the above. In Jesus' world, nothing could have been farther from the truth. Seriously, nothing could have been farther from the truth. Jews did not even speak to Gentiles. They just didn't. They had nothing to do with them, period. And Samaritans, it was even worse because you're half Jewish, and so the contempt was just intense by the Jews. So where does Jesus take his disciples on this day? Where are they going? He's taking them through Tyre and Sidon, right in the midst of all this territory of Gentiles, Gentiles who themselves are abusers of the Jews, who are taking advantage of the Jews, who are the sworn enemy of the Jews. Jesus is going to take the gospel and the grace to them. And you know what he's doing when he gets up there? He's healing the sick. He's giving sight to the blind. He's healing the lame. He's teaching the gospel of Jesus and the message that God brings love and forgiveness and peace. This is what Jesus is doing for the Gentiles. Don't you know his disciples, his Jewish 
disciples are going out of their mind during this trip. Let's go back in time. Who makes up Jesus' disciples? Okay, One of them is a zealot, a Jewish Zionist zealot, the guy that carries a dagger looking for to stab and kill a Herodian or a Roman anytime he gets. You think this guy's like, oh, cool, Gentiles. It'd be like some of you saying, we're going to Afghanistan and we're going to be ministering there in Afghanistan. Some of you are going to be like, Muslims? Right? I know, see, you're squirming because I kind of plowed a little deep on you right there, right? But at, at this moment, Jesus is going to minister to people that the Jews hate and don't want anything to do with. Nothing to do with. He's going to the other side of the tracks. Right, Southerners? You with me? He's going to the other side of the tracks in that part of town we don't go. They don't come here, and we don't go there. They got their grocery stores and their marts, and we got ours over here. If you're on the wrong side of the tracks, is what are you doing here? And exactly that attitude was happening when Jews, a rabbi, and his band of apostles are showing up in Tyre and Sidon and all through this Gentile country before they make their way back down to Galilee. With that stage set, with that stage set, when Jesus was ready to feed those 4,000, are you feeling the tension that his apostles were feeling? You get it? You get it why the message didn't immediately sink right in? <laughs> when, Jesus, when Jesus said, um, we need to give these people something to eat. Well, you're in the middle of a desert. Where are these people going to get anything to eat? How many, uh, how many loaves do you have? It was just a few months ago they did it before. But do you know why the apostles couldn't see it? You ready? Because they were being racists. They were being racists. They were saying, they're Gentiles. They're dogs. Why should we give what's holy to dogs? You understand why Mark gave the message of the Syrophoenician woman and the account of Jesus' interaction with her right before the feeding of the four? Do you understand what Mark is trying to do? What's Mark trying to get you to understand? That Jesus has come to bring the gospel to all people. And he's going to give what's holy to all people. Because Gentiles and Jews alike are God's people. And Jesus loves them all. The Old Testament is now the old covenant is closed. The new covenant of, of grace in Jesus, faith in Jesus, is there for all, including the Gentiles. That's a beautiful message. And I'm afraid that a lot of us in our world today, we read the feeding of the five and the feeding of the four, and we just go, huh, he's feeding people again. And we miss the deeper, intense meaning that Jesus is trying to get across. It's this, <clears throat> I'm patient I'm going to keep teaching the same lesson over and over until you get it. And I love all people, which means all skin colors, all ethnicities, gender, socioeconomic wealth, political patterns. Jesus loves all people, and the gospel is for all. And the kingdom of heaven, friends, is going to look like Syrophoenicians and Jews sitting next to each other, eating bread together in harmony and in relationship and in fellowship because they're the children of Jesus Christ. And that family doesn't know boundaries. Isn't that beautiful? Thank you, Mark. Thank you for making sure that you wrote that down and set a good example for Matthew and Luke and John so that, so that we, we get to look at it today and go, wow, that, that's my Messiah. That's my Jesus. That's what he was trying to teach then, and it's what he continues to teach now. That is a beautiful and a giant message. But, hey, there's more. Third, dinner chat is application time. Who do, you, who do you have dinner with? Who do you have meals with? Somebody. Who, who do you normally gather with? 
Family? Friends? Okay. Oh, Marietta. <laughs> Your cats. I asked. You know, I walked right into that. I know Marietta better than that. Here's what we do. We tend to want to have dinner with people we'd like to get to know or that we enjoy or that we have a familial or, or a close relationship with. Isn't that true? Is that a pretty fair statement? I know you could probably find a 1% answer. Well, sometimes you have them with business partners you're trying to make a deal with. Thanks. Thanks. Appreciate it. But you're, you're trying to engage in relationship when we have dinner. Isn't that true? And we're not just like wolves who sit around a carcass and, and munch on it, you know, bite at somebody who tries to reach over on your plate. What, what we do at dinner... We're eating together, but we're sharing a time that's somewhat intimate, right? That time of intimacy we're eating, we're doing something where you're safe with the people around you, and you have conversation with one another. Jesus had this idiosyncratic thing that we miss sometimes. I don't want us to miss it. I want to look at it. In Luke chapter 24, verses 30 to 35, I'm just going to tell you about it. You can write it down if you're a note taker in your nugget book or whatever. But um, after his resurrection, Jesus has been out of the tomb for a day or so, and most people have left Jerusalem. All these travelers that were there for, Pesach, uh, for Passover were in Jerusalem at the time, and Jesus is, is resurrected, and people are going back to the places they came from, and they're all talking about what just happened. There was... There was this uh, Messiah figure. He came in and we were yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, he even came in with the, with the sins of the world around his neck through the sheep's gate. It was amazing. And, and, and he confronted the Pharisees, he confronted the Romans, and they crucified him, called him king of the Jews and crucified him. And then and it, just, it was all over. We thought it was going to be the Messiah, and they're going home. And as they're going home, they're talking about what happened. And on this road, there's a group of people. They're traveling to a city called Emmaus, a town called Emmaus. And as they're walking, all of a sudden, this guy starts walking along with them. Oh, hey, hey, stranger, where, where'd you come from? And, as, and, and he said, uh, what's everybody looking sad about? They said, haven't you heard of the only pilgrim in Jerusalem doesn't know what happened to what we thought was the Messiah? And Jesus said, no, why don't you tell me? And as he starts to tell him, he says, oh, you foolish people. Haven't you understand what script, understood what Scripture's tried to teach you? And Jesus, from Jerusalem to Emmaus, pretty much an all-day walk, He walks those 12, 15 miles with them, and He tells them everything where the Old Testament had pointed to the Messiah and who the Messiah would be and how it was fulfilled in Jesus. And they're just astonished. They're amazed at this message they're hearing. And then it, Scripture tells us their hearts were burning within them. It tells them right here in, in verse, uh, uh, verse 12, I think it was. Their, their hearts are just burning within them. And as they get, to, they get to their house, they say, well, won't you stay with us, traveler, stranger, teacher? Won't you stay with us tonight? We'll feed you and house you here. You know, good hospitality. You can be on your way in the morning. So Jesus said, sure. And as they gather around, the, the, they didn't sit at tables like we do. They, they gather around dinner that night, and Jesus reclines, and, and he picks up the bread, and he blesses it, and he breaks it, and he begins to hand it to him. And they went, what? They realized who he was. They hadn't noticed before. Who were they looking for before? They were looking for a beat-down, scrubby carpenter who showed all the signs of wear and age and all, just, you know, what that life would do to you in, in, in that age. And instead, they see Jesus in His perfected form walks with them and He teaches them. But when He breaks the bread, suddenly they realize who He is. You know what I would love? I would love if people really realized who you are as people when they sat down to dinner with you. You know why we say a prayer or blessing before we eat? You know why? Because Jesus gave us this as a pattern. 
He showed us what it's like. It's how he did it. People, we, we gather at the table and we stop to thank God for our food and to dedicate this time to him. When we, when we gather at the table, it's not just thanks God for the food. Uh, okay, we can all eat now. I really hate my balls. One day was terrible. No, no, wait, 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 wait. What should happen is we gather to eat. Thank you, God, for the food that we get to enjoy. Thank you that we're eating. <laughs> Thank you that you made the food, that you gave us the resources to provide it. Thank you for the people that we get to sit at the table with. And now, God, during the course of our meal, we give you this time. We, we sanctify it for you. May our conversation honor you. Amen. And now as we eat around that table, we're mimicking the way Jesus demonstrated meals to be eaten. In fellowship, in friendship, in a holy union. Where we're eating, our conversation should honor Him. How beautiful the opportunity we have as the children of Jesus in restaurants and around your family tables and around the tables when friends are over. To say, hey, listen, before we eat today, can we just say a word of thanks and dedicate this time to Christ? When you do that, most people are pretty respectful and appreciate that, even if they're not believers. And who cares if they don't? Because quite frankly, what we're doing is honoring Jesus' pattern. And if we do it His way, eventually the lesson starts to get through. As parents, we pray before we eat with our children because eventually the message starts to get through that we're supposed to be grateful thankful people. And when you pray in those restaurants, what's the message that goes to the waitress who may, oh, may have to wait for a second to refill your water glass or to, or to put your tray on there? What's the message that gets across? What do you think they, they see when you're praying? Christians. Christians. Nobody else does that. Christians do that. And it's an overt statement of who we are as God's people. It's even neat sometimes if it's appropriate. Don't be pretentious and fake about it. But if you're getting ready to pray and the waitress comes by, yeah, listen, we're getting ready to pray. Is there anything we could pray for you about? You'll be astonished the way waitresses react sometimes. Um, I do it at the Betsy Ross every once in a while, so I have a hard time getting the waitress to come back, but it's okay. <laughs> I, think it, I think it's fun, though, if we can be intentional about, about our prayer before our meals. Jesus did it, and it, it, is the, it was the way people realized, oh, my gosh, that's who you are. All of the Christians in the early church, this was common for them. They gathered together in meals. This was what Christians did as families. And, and, and that Christian family, they would break bread together. That's where the term comes from, breaking bread together. Finally, um, Christians, this thing we do, this communion, this Lord's Supper that we share as Christians. Here's what's going on. We're gathering as the body and the blood, the children of Jesus, the brethren. He's the firstborn among many brethren, brothers and sisters. That's us, the family. When we gather together, what we're doing is we're taking that bread and we're taking that wine and we're remembering. We're part of Jesus' family. This is a family meal. That's why only Christians take it. Look, the elements themselves aren't magical. You're not eating Jesus, for heaven's sakes. It's not doing any magical thing to you. What it's doing is it's causing each one of us to remember who you are and who you belong to and where what the price was for who you belong to. And it reminds you that the billions of Christians across the centuries that have followed Jesus in, in, as, as believers and have had that communion with Him, you're part of that family. And it's important. And it's a sacred moment. And you should take it seriously. And remember, what you're promising to be a part of 
And just like you pray before you eat, because you want to make sure you're grateful and that your conversation is sanctified and honors God, when you take that communion, you know what you're doing? You're, you're praying before you eat and praying that your lifestyle and your behavior and the things that fill your mind and come up uh, in your behavior, that all of those things are worthy and sanctified before God because you're a member of this family that you participate and partake with. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Bread. It's about bread. That's what Jesus was trying to get across to the apostles. That's what he's trying to get across to the crowd at at Delanothia. They're trying to get across to the crowd uh, at the feeding of the 5,000. The bread represents that which you need to eat in order to survive and to live and to be whole. And that's the application Jesus was making there at dinner time on two different hills. And it's the application I hope you make at dinner time with your family. I hope it's the application that you make and live out for the waitress, for the tables around you, for the families that you raise, for the friends that are in your home, and wherever the opportunity avails itself to demonstrate what it is to be grateful and sanctified as a Christian. As we get ready to close, I want to I ask you to bow your heads. I want to ask you to close your eyes. And I just want to request that you get in front of God for just a minute. Now, nothing, nothing crazy or magic here. I just, I just want you to get before God. I just want you to focus in on him for just a second. And we're going we're gonna to go into a time of prayer. Each one of us in front of God. If you know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior today, you can know that as soon as you call upon the name of the Lord, you are in conversation with him. If today you came to Sturgeon Bay Community Church and you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. You, you haven't confessed with your mouth that He is God and believed in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. If you haven't come to that point of saying, Jesus, I give you my heart and my soul, maybe today is exactly the right day for you. Following this service, there'll be myself and some of the other elders and staff. We're, we always gather right down front here. We would love to talk with you about that. So that's the prayer you may want to pray today. Jesus, come and take over. Be my Savior, my Lord. I believe you are who... Mark says you are. You're the Messiah, the Son of God. But for the majority of us here today, you know Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. And it's time to do a little business with your God. So Lord Jesus, as we gather today, um, we're, we're drawn to a few things. Lord, first of all, over and over and over again, you're trying to teach us. Over and over and over again, we, we read your word. We hear the things that you've taught and the way that we're supposed to live this life. But God, it seems that like adolescents, like kids, we just keep trying to do it our own way and expect a different result. God, right now, would you reveal in the hearts of those of us who are here, God, are there lessons you're trying to teach us that we're just not hearing? God, at this moment, can you open our mind a bit? Give us ears to hear, eyes to see what is it you're trying to show us in life right now? God, in many of our lives, there are distractions, things that we've placed around us that make it hard to spend time with you, that make it hard 
to have dinners with our families and friends that make it hard to come to church on Sundays and fellowship with our Christian brothers and sisters, that make it hard to spend time in prayer, that make it hard to hear what you're teaching us. God, it seems the poor have no problem with that because they're not distracted. It seems like us fat and happy middle-class Americans are the ones that uh, just don't have time for you, Lord. God, in this moment, in each one of our open hearts and minds right now, would you show us some areas where maybe we need to make more time for you in prayer, in meditation, in thought, in study, in reading? God, would you show us where maybe our priorities have become askew? Lastly, this morning, Jesus, as we've read what your apostle, what, what, what John Mark took the time to write and to record and to bring us, what, what Peter had taught John Mark and what you had taught Peter. Lord, as, as we read about the way you broke bread, the way that you always blessed it, and the way that your dinnertime conversation was always turned towards the kingdom. God, would you begin to just impress in each one of our hearts, stamp in us a passion for not letting those times go by. Lord, that we do pray with gratitude and purpose before our meals. And that our dinner conversation honors you and is an opportunity to pass along and to teach and to revel and to edify in the things that have kingdom and eternal value. God, would you just continue to convict us that way? Forgive us where we've been childish, cowards, and don't pray before our meals because we're afraid somebody might look at us or laugh at us or snicker at us or, heaven forbid, be offended. God, help us to be bold and proud disciples of Jesus Christ. Thank you for our food. Dedicate our time and eat our meals with people that we can celebrate with, learn with, challenge with. God, I just pray that that becomes something we continue to follow today the way you demonstrated it in your day. Lord, we've prayed all these things in your name because we love you. We believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen.